synchronize your watches, hold on to your seats, catch your breath. Mr. Hudsucker. And get ready for the magic. From the award-winning creators of Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, and Joel Silver, who brought you Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, comes a comedy that's sure to take your breath away. It could work. It should work. It would work. It's working already. The Hudsucker Proxy. What the hell is it? Well, it's a very Newman New Year around here at Reconcinimation. Welcome to a brand new episode of Reconcinimation. I am John Diner. And I'm David Munchak. And I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of your favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And like I've mentioned, and as we've been doing all month long, it is Paul Newman New Year. And we are taking a look back at some of Paul Newman's uh, greatest works from his uh, his career, and today we are taking a look back at 1994's The Hudsucker Proxy. So, hey. yeah, All right, you well, know, for the kids, for the kids, exactly, exactly. Well, welcome back to the show, Cohen Brothers. It's uh, always yeah. always good to have them here. They're sitting in the studio with us, of course, just observing from just taking notes and watching us talk about them. Yeah. They love to hear. They love to hear people talk about them. What? Oh, yeah. What were the? What? What? What other movies have we done about with the Coen Brothers? Well, we but the Coen Brothers. We only covered Fargo, no. so you can dig that out in the archives at www.reconcinimation.com. That was back in our winter wonderland of uh, what was that? 2019, 2020. I think it was 2020. Yeah. So uh, this, yeah, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, probably. Yeah, yeah it would have been right. season two. So and then Sam was, Raimi. Uh, who wrote who co-wrote this movie uh also back welcome back right since we've had him back from the that oh, other so movie. simple plan simple plan. Simple yeah, plan. plan also from that very same winter wonderland back uh, about two years ago so it's good a lot of a lot of people involved with this movie we uh but we're, we're talking a lot of paul newman and we were discussing the hustler which is one of probably the movie that really solidified him as an A-list megastar in 1961. And then we uh, last last episode, we talked about the follow-up to that, which was 1986's Color, The Color of Money uh, by Martin Scorsese. So, you know, we, we recapped Newman's early career. We kind of discussed his the bridge between The Hustler and Color of Money and, and how his career sort of arced which is really the bulk of his career and his best work is done in between those years. And now we're taking a little bit of a leap ahead to 1994 and we're checking out the, you know, the older, the more grizzled veteran uh, Paul Newman and what he's got going on. So uh, David, for those that maybe haven't, uh, haven't seen the film in a while, can you, can you recap the Hudsucker proxy? Give it like Uh a 30 second recap. Hudsucker Proxy is kind of a uh, zany take on the capitalistic nature of uh, of mega corporations in the fifties, um, where a young uh, a young sort of naive upstart is manipulated uh, by uh, by the, the the board members uh, uh, to, to 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 tank the company for the benefit of of the the rich people involved, 
and uh, we find we find him tangled up in in an inexplicable situation where uh, love and uh, friendship is uh, tested. Eh, I don't know if that's right, <laughs> but <laughs> Sounds maybe good. not so much. Maybe love, but <laughs> maybe love, but not friendship. And uh, and it's sort of a and it's 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 a zany little this little movie um, with a lot of with a lot to say. Yeah, a lot to say. And and this is a this is a different Paul Newman we're taking a look at, but you know I'll take any Paul Newman. I love Paul Newman. He's my number one guy besides Kurt Russell, uh, and and he's just got such an amazing career. He's such an interesting, fascinating person of of all the you know generous things that he's been involved in away from the camera and and uh, with salad dressing, with salad dressing with, with the children's the salad dressing, yeah. Don't forget, don't forget Newman's own. So, uh, but yeah, just such a, a legendary figure in, in the film business. And, and I really don't think there's too many people like him. Maybe, maybe a George Clooney is sort of a modern day Paul Newman. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, I w- yeah. That's a good one. That's an, inter- that's an interesting, I, you know, yeah. just how, it, like how into, you know, the health of the environment, you know, is one of his, big causes that he's involved with kind of you know comparable to what newman was doing uh, yeah. at the time yeah. so his, his love of nespresso yeah nespresso um, of course yeah big big deal there you go <laughs> newman had dressing <laughs> clooney's got nespresso yeah and that's a lot of what uh newman is is has going on in 1994 he's gotten really sort of stepped away from acting a bit yeah quieted the career down only does three movies which we'll discuss uh, in between the color of money in this and is mostly working on his, his charitable work and things away from the, from the camera. But uh, this marks a return. And uh, when was the first time you guys saw the Hudsucker proxy? Uh, me this week. Wow. Really? I've been meaning to see it forever. It's awesome. No, forever. It's and this is a, this is a delightful, a delightful surprise. Um, but I didn't, I didn't even realize I was watching a Coen brothers movie <laughs> initially. Should have sort of figured it out, but I didn't even know. I forgot. I forgot that that's part of their oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, right. But um, I didn't realize it at first, too. The very first time I saw it, no, didn't really clue in. Yeah, it just I mean, it's because it's not one that's really talked about as far as like when you're talking about their movies, just like it. And uh, but uh, da, 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 uh, yeah, like so it was something I've always wanted to see. I was a big Tim Robbins fan for so long, especially in the 90s, you know, so it was just like, oh, I got to see this. And I didn't realize how funny it was supposed to be and uh, and how funny it is. So, yeah, I don't know. So what a delight. It's it's interesting that you both say that you didn't know that it was a Coen Brothers movie uh, when you when you saw it. I did know it was a Coen Brothers movie when I saw it, but I didn't know it was a Coen Brothers movie until I'd gone to college and was mm-hmm. really introduced to the love of Coen Brothers through a mutual friend of John and I's. Uh, Jared, who uh, I think educated both of us probably on, I, on I think everybody at the school, yeah. <laughs> um, had having worked at a video store. Had I known that this was a Coen Brothers movie earlier, uh, and and known that it was by the same guys who had done Raising Arizona, I definitely would have seen it. But this thing sat on the shelf at the video store the entire time that I worked there. Never once was I interested in seeing it. It did not look like anything that I was interested in. I just wasn't fully like aware of Tim Robbins really at this time, because it was, 
like I was starting to know him from Shawshank, but you know, which came out roughly around the same time. Right. Is. Same but, year. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, you know, like I had kind of, you know, with Bob Roberts, I'd kind of missed the, the ban on him. So it was like Bull Durham was the only thing I really knew this guy from. And uh, so I totally didn't see it until college when I think I saw every, I don't know, John, if it was like we did it together or not, but I know that through Jared, I was able to watch every Coen Brothers movie that had been made up to that point. And that's when I was introduced to Hudsucker Proxy uh, and uh, in, in earnest. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it had to be, it, it, that had to be then probably freshman year with you in mm-hmm. college. A hundred percent. Yep. You, you, you got it. That's uh, that is when we were educated to the, the true yes. glory that is the Coen brothers. But I first saw this when it hit pay-per-view. So that would be towards the end of 1994. Uh, I, I didn't get it. I didn't find, I, I didn't, see the humor in it i didn't see the dramatic side i just saw some mixed up movie that didn't make sense which is what i also thought about army of darkness the first time i saw it oh next to that sam raimi interesting but, um, sam raimi bruce campbell also he, in this exactly yeah uh yeah they're all connected at this point in time so um yeah and then i didn't i didn't really even know who the coen brothers were you know i knew about each of the movies i'd seen raising arizona loved it Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing, I knew of, but didn't pay that much attention to. So it wasn't until I saw Fargo in the theater in 96 that I was like, oh, who are these guys? Like, what else have they done? And then I started looking like, oh, these are all their movies. Okay, this, I guess this sort of makes sense. But then when we went to school and our friend Jared sat us down and we watched all of them chronologically, and that would have probably ended with Fargo. So it was only six films at the time. Yeah. Lebowski came out pretty quickly after that. But uh, yeah, that was when I really learned to appreciate to fully appreciate the Coen brothers. And that's when I got this movie. Once I watched it in that context, I I could understand their humor and their style. And it made more sense to me. And I loved it. I love this movie. Well, and then I think also at that time, because we're in film school, right? Like we're focused on other things you know, like we're introduced to Fritz Lang. We're seeing a lot of, a lot of things, you know, that, that were inspired, like Terry Gilliam movies mm-hmm. like Brazil and things that are obviously influences on this movie. And so like we, I think not only were we educated on the Coen brothers by Jared at this time, but also through film school, we were getting kind of educated on this sort of style and, yeah. and of filmmaking. And so, um, yeah, it was, I agree. When I when I saw it in school, like I was obviously uh, it was the first time and I was instantly a fan, like I just the production design and everything that they had going on with it was fantastic. And yeah. so. And yeah, I mean, when you're in film school, you're you're a sponge. You're just soaking up everything. You're watching everything like we watch so many movies together, mostly, too. Yeah. And just, you know, we absorb, we're trying to absorb all of it. And, and that's what we're doing. We're studying it and we're learning about it. And, and I'm there's ima- so much here. I'm imagining you two guys in a, in a dorm room, uh, sitting on beach chairs, beers in your hands, and then holding hands and just watching the, the, the classics and saying, well, isn't this the life? Beach chairs, just- not so much, but the way that the, the, the <laughs> dorms were set up, 
the 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 beds like doubled as as kind of couches and so people would just kind of line up you know kind of galley style Mm -hmm. and and you know you in at least in our room and in jared's room the tv was at the end of the the Mm -hmm. the room and you're just like all kind of pile in there was Mm -hmm. probably depending on when it was that first year there may have been booze involved or or oh i'm sure well at that point maybe maybe not first half second 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 semester yeah Yeah. Yeah. first semester less i I remember shirley temples in first first semester (laughs) yeah right some coca-colas yeah i uh i remember having a shopping cart chair that uh (laughs) our friend jaime borrowed for us what's a shopping cart chair Uh, a shopping shopping cart from a nearby grocery store that you sit in yeah. and it had a high basket, right? Not a low basket. Like most of the grocery stores do, right. you know, the big, the main basket, it was like up off of the oh, they're smaller, but taller. Yeah. Kinda. So, yeah. and I just lined it with like pillows and a blanket and there it became Get the a, hell out that's of how here. you do it. It was actually what quite everything. Everything is furniture. It was everything quite comfortable for about, 10 minutes and then and then you're your like how do i get like, out of this mm, effing thing yeah my my so, my sophomore year which was my first off-campus housing i lived with john kazemple who we've had on our james bond episodes um we, we had a party the first weekend and we found a, sh- a sliding shower door in the basement of the house we were renting and cinder blocks that was our oh. coffee table for a solid year <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And, See? and we were serving like furniture. We were serving chips and stuff in like pots and colanders lined with paper towels. And uh, yeah, you yes, you make furniture out of whatever you got, whatever you can get. That's <laughs> whatever free. works. <laughs> I felt like a genius. I'm like, great. Grab, grab those cylinder, grab, grab those uh, cinder blocks. We're, we, we need a coffee table. I was yeah. panicking 30 <laughs> minutes before the party. Like, We don't have a coffee table. Where are we going to serve <laughs> the chips? We had random shit, man. Like we decorated our walls with, like we took screens off. This is not with with John, but another roommate of mine later, Emery, in our apartment. We decorated the apartment walls with like the screens from our from our windows. Like we took the screens out of our windows and hung them on the wall for some reason. We like, like push pen, like as yeah, 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 yeah. It's like art, you know, because we're screen creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you Brilliant. did. And then we took like empty, like two liter bottles and like push pin them into the ceiling. So they just hang down. It looked like it kind of a, Holy shit. it looked like a, we did it. So it was like 10 pins looking like, you know, hanging from the, the ceiling. Oh my God. And we just random shit, man. That like whatever, whatever all, you get it, your hands on. It all made sense decor. back then. It all made sense back then. Yeah. If you were high enough, uh, if you were drunk, whatever, if you were inebriated enough, it all made sense. Yeah. Let's hey, live. there's there's not a lot to do in Santa Fe, so you got to make your own entertainment, and yeah. we were pretty good at that. Well, that's like like you know when you're that age, and it's like, oh well, all these bottles of booze are so interesting looking. So then that just becomes decor. You just put those yeah, on you, shelves, and like it's empty we bottles. Filled, we filled them with food colored water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Food yeah. Yeah. water. That's <laughs> absolutely. It's like this is cool. Like our parents, our parents' house doesn't look like this. Like we're doing. <laughs> Because a, a Jim Beam bottle filled with with green f- food dye, uh, yeah. you know, nothing what, wrong with what any doesn't of that. Scream, what doesn't scream art? Yeah, but it's so like, that. oh, this is different. This is cool. Like, you know, ah, it's yeah. so funny. Uh, to think. Anyway, oh man, cool. Well, days, but 
Yeah, that was uh, we did. We did. I believe we watched all of these Coen Brothers movies together as a big group. So, yeah, which had to make our friend Jared very, very happy. He was educating all of us. He was the godfather of the Coen Brothers. I, I used to love going back home to New York and show all my friends over the summer like all the movies that blew me away that whole year, you know? Yeah. So, so it was fun to like have an audience for it, but yeah, I mean, prior to going to school, I think, I mean, raising Arizona and, and just Fargo because it, it was hugely popular at mm-hmm. the time when it came out it was a crazy success, independent kind of vibe to it that, you know, did really well at the Oscars, you know, like, uh, aside from those two movies, like those are really the only two Coen Brothers movies I had known about until going to school. And then it was obviously Hudsucker and Miller's mm-hmm. Crossing and, you know, so. Their their whole career path is is really interesting of, of how they started. And, and, you know, once they started directing with Blood Simple in, I believe that was 1985, you know, it was very much, it was a tried and true independent film. You know, that yeah. is really kind of the blueprint of what an independent film is. And I think it was successful on from a critical standpoint and from a film festival standpoint, but not necessarily financially, although it cost almost nothing to make. But that, of course, opened the door for them to make Raising Arizona, which was which was a hit and a fantastic movie. I mean, Blood Symbol is a fantastic movie, too, but that's sort of dark, serious Coen Brothers. Yeah. And you get sort of the other end of the spectrum. We talked about it on our Fargo episode that there's sort of uh, up until a certain point, there's like two kinds of Coen Brothers movies. There's the there's the dark, dramatic ones or there's the over the top funny ones. And it's kind of one or the other. And you never knew which one they were going to do next. But so you get your your film noirish kind of blood simple raising Arizona. You get your I don't know, I would probably say a little bit bigger of a budget, but um, more grandiose flat out comedy um and it's brilliantly done at that Still some dark humor but there's some yeah, dark humor but definitely sure, but, yeah. comedy but portrayed and from a comedic standpoint what they're Absolutely. doing is totally you know messed up and dark and creepy but it's like you're totally on board with them the whole time um one of my favorite lines in any movie is from raising arizona it's when nicholas cage goes into the uh the like the supermarket and he's like uh you got any of those funny shaped uh, balloons and the, the guy behind the counter is like, not unless rounds funny. <laughs> <It's> just like <laughs> cracks me up every time. There's so many of those little little pieces of dialogue in all the Coen Brothers movies that are just they're so they're so great. And and I'm sure if Jared were here, which he is in spirit, he would uh, be able to Rest spout some of those out. <laughs> Rest in but, peace, Jared. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive. Oh oh oh, okay, got it. Yeah. got it. Um. <laughs> Anyway, so after that, they sort of, uh, you know, with the success of Raising Arizona, they try their hand at a a their version of a gangster story, which is Miller's Crossing, uh, immediately followed up by Barton Fink. Now, both of those also successful, I think Barton more so than Miller's Crossing on the the festival circuit, you know, circuit. And uh, at this time in the 90s, like the festival and the independent filmmaking, like that was like the whole that was like the rage, right? Like right. everything is... was about independent filmmaking. Yep. Sling Blade had come out. Everything was like, 
Well, it really started with Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 89 with Soderbergh. That sort of kicked off that 90s independent film film movement, which was, you know, uh, say whatever you want about him. But at the head of that was sort of Miramax and Quentin Tarantino Mm -hmm. and Robert Rodriguez's, but so many other filmmakers, too. Coen Brothers being among them. Yep. The... Those are those two films are are great in their own way. It took a little longer for me to really latch on to those ones. Like I when love I watched Barton them with Fink, man. When I watched them with Jared the first time, I enjoyed them, but I had a hard time focusing on them. So it wasn't until like a second watch that I really got into it and like really dove in all the way. But amazing, they're every one of them are, are brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I watched Barton Fink for the first time like two years ago, and uh, and I've been meaning to see it. And I was just like, I didn't even know what it was really about. I didn't, I really didn't have any knowledge of it. So yeah. to go in blind, knowing like, and it was, oh, it's great. It's I mean, it's Turo in that is Turo oh, good. Oh, Turo, everything. <laughs> Albert yeah. Finney, like so so yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, it is a it it's a slow burn, but yeah. Yeah. it's it's really Goodman? at the time might have been my favorite. Uh, Coen Brothers movie. Miller's Crossing or Barton? Barton Fink. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Torturo is amazing in that. Goodman. Oh, so those just amazing performances. And John Polito is is great also. And the Coen Brothers have their sort of, they're starting to put together their pool of actors. Their, their sort of ensemble that they're going to go to for a lot of their films over and over. And unfortunately, they've kind of strayed away from that in recent years. But uh, you'll see some of them pop up here and there. But uh, yeah, now after after those films, then they kind of decide they want to make more of a studio mainstream movie and uh, make a deal with uh, Joel Silver, who we've talked about many times here on the show and uh, and with Warner Brothers to to set up their next picture, which would end up being the Hudsucker proxy. So this is a. This is a script that was written along with Sam Raimi. I mean, the f- first finished draft was 1985. So it's wow. about seven years of the script being basically finished before it actually got into real sort of pre-production. And I'm sure tweaks and changes were made at that point, but uh, the basic gist of it was already done. So uh, the the whole union with Sam Raimi is pretty is pretty interesting that they... Uh, they crossed paths really early in their career. Joel Cohen was an, I think, an assistant editor on the first Evil Dead film, and that's where they sort of connected and became friends. And they were uh, the Cohen brothers helped out on on Sam Raimi's Crime Wave and in Evil Dead Two a little bit, and Raimi would help out on Blood Simple and and I think I think Raising Arizona a bit, but they were just kind of like they lived together. They lived in a house with like a bunch of other people, um, Holly, Holly Hunter and, uh, Kathy Baker lived in the house. Like it was a whole bunch of, it's a lot of people in one house, a lot of talent in one house. Yeah. That's, that's amazing to me. It's, it's crazy. And they would sort of like when the Coen brothers would hit a roadblock in their, you know, a a a little bit of writer's block, Ramey would you know, set up these sort of elaborate gags to just kind of snap them out of it and get their, their juices flowing again. But I I think these guys work really well together. And this is a really good example of their, 
visual styles sort of merging. There's a lot of shots that you can see. Like that is a Sam Raimi shot right here. That fast kind of zoom in, like push in and like, like the evil dead shots on the motorcycle. You'll see some of those in you see it in blood, simple raising Arizona and this. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so they, they, uh, you know, partner up with, uh, with Joel silver and, and I don't know, you know, if that was, uh, not that it wasn't a match made in heaven, but the decision to do a studio film at this point in their career, I don't know if that was really the, the right choice for them at the time. I mean, it made sense why they wanted to do it, but they're so stylized. They're such, so they're so independent and want things their way it in a way doesn't make sense to go with a major studio like that. What, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think you're right on with the, the thought that, you know, they, they do want to kind of be, they don't want to be uh, answering to anybody. They want to kind of make their movies their way. Um, and, you know, I think that that doesn't mix well with the studio kind of mentality, having executives, kind of weigh in and give notes and and you know unfortunately when when big studio heads give notes like you've got to address that and you know I think we see that in some of the movie in some places in this movie like I know the fight scene at the end of the movie was added later because of an executive note and that wasn't mm-hmm. something that they really wanted to have in there um and so you know I think um I think it was probably eye opening for them you know, to, to have to go through that experience. And I think, I think that's why you see after this, that they kind of shy away from it again. Yeah. 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 This is exactly, you know, we'll get to it at the end, but kind of how you get to a movie like Fargo. Yeah. With the producers that made it. So, uh, but creatively sort of speaking, you know, they they were inspired. They were always sort of in love with the films of Preston Sturgis and Frank Capra. And those were really the inspiration for telling this story. Now, now the hot sucker proxy is not a sort of remaking any of their films or retelling or even an homage to it's just the Coen brothers wanted to make their own version of that kind of movie. So the any like direct reference to any of their films and or, or scenes like it is unintentional it was just sort of like they wanted to make their version of that that kind of movie so so this is what we get um you know the, there's so many visual elements to this movie i mean all of the Coen brothers movies are visual but this one is really striking because just from a a production design standpoint and a cinematography standpoint this is uh really sort of their a, a dream for a production designer that i mean it's these, inc- yeah, yeah the production design go, go is ahead. incredible Oh no, I'm sorry. I totally interrupted, but the production, I agree with you completely. The production design is, is amazing. Like, I mean, it's sort of that 1930s art deco style. And I know the movie's set like late fifties, so it's a little out of place, but it looks great. And it, it again, it, like it kind of harkens over to some of the stuff that you see with Brazil and, and, and other movies. But I mean, like that mailroom scene up at the front is just like, Ooh. it's kind of incredible, right? Like how massive, they make that mailroom feel. And I mean, everything that's going on, just like the busyness of that scene and, and all the fast talking, like it's all really well choreographed and like expertly put together, you know, it's uh, it's, it's, there's so many 
set pieces and things like that in this movie that are just like you have to like kind of sit back and just respect Mm -hmm. like the craft of 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 creating and and really uh you know the the composition of of these scenes yeah dennis gassner is the production designer and this is the second collaboration i believe with roger deakins as cinematographer they started off with barry sonnenfeld who at at this point i think had split off to start directing his own films uh so deakins jumps in and that was just you know an amazing marriage uh between all of these creative minds and and eyes (laughs) to to put this all together and yeah, there's, you know, just the reference. There's so many references to to Metropolis, to Brazil, like you mentioned, um, all putting that together and, and these. These wide open rooms, you know, between the the, the basement, the, the like boiler. Yeah, yeah. And then the boardroom and then yeah. the, you know, uh, Musburger's office, so just these giant empty rooms that are feel like they're like 50 feet tall with just a lot of vertical you know, vertical lines sort of drawing your eye in a lot of these places, but it, it's really quite striking. Yeah. Oh, or like the, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dan. No, I mean, uh, just, well, and I like, I like that there for the, to, to get New York styles, you know, of that time, it's like, well, there's miniatures throughout and like, mm-hmm. right. And it's just, you know, it's very much like, uh, and then, you know, you're just using the, the, the flat sort of, um, you know the silhouettes of the of the of the city and uh, on the backings outside the windows and all that, but but it, it but there's like depth to it, so it always feels like everything is bigger than it is, and like it's just it, I just love that that the, using those miniatures as part of that tool set of like the vastness of the city, this big open area thing, but you're shooting something that is you know uh, one 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 hundred twenty eighth to scale, you know, and it's. But it's but those miniatures are big, like and and to use that, um, you know, in, in juxtaposition to, you know, these large open spaces, um, is great. Yeah, seeing the miniatures again because I think the opening shot is all is miniatures and it and it's just so I miss that I miss that real, yeah. just there's it's just not the same when you see it digitally. I mean. To creating a world like that digitally is fine and it and it's also beautiful but it's just not quite tangible like mm-hmm. miniatures are yeah. you know and really good miniatures you can't tell that they're miniatures i mean you have to if you're looking for it you'll see it but you know you just you don't see that anymore and i, re- I really miss that you know miniatures matte paintings those are technology technologies that just aren't really used anymore what were you going to say about uh, the, the wide open spaces though, uh, Brent? Oh, I was just going to talk more about like, even like the, like the gear room for the clock, you know, like, yeah. you know, like the intricacy of, of, of that space as well. You know, like I just wanted to kind of shout it out. Cause I, I find that, you know, like it's, it's kind of an incredible feat because it feels claustrophobic yet. It feels massive in scale as well, which I think is just kind of like really you know, quite compelling and interesting that they were able to kind of create that, that dual kind of purpose from it. Well, yeah. And that's what I love about that, that scene in particular too, is just like, you get, you get the sense of that vastness and that scope, but then when it's down to two characters talking to each other, 
you just get one shot in one direction and you get the reverse and that's it. Like, it's just boom, boom. They're not going to, there's no, like, because now it's about the characters. It doesn't matter what the environment is. And that's what all these, all these scenes end up being, right? It's all these, these like establishing things where then everything kind of closes in on itself. And then now it's just about these two people talking to each other. And I just, it's such a, I just love that about kind of, that's kind of what they do anyway, but it is like, I, I just, I was a big fan of how that this, this movie felt because it, it explores this bigness and vastness. And then it all, as, as any good film will do, it's, it's about the people you're watching, not the, how great something looks on the camera. Yeah. They, they always create such great and interesting characters that balanced with a really strong visual style. Like you said, it, it's, it's, they know what to focus on. So let's start our scenes with seeing everything and how pretty it all is and how nicely shot it is. And then we're just going to focus on the actors and them doing their thing. And we're not going to get crazy with shots around them. We're just going to keep it basic when the guys are talking, when the, you know, the actors are talking. So, um, on well, the performances just, here are great as well. I mean, yeah. yeah. Top to so bottom, yeah. really looking back on it on all the, coen brothers films to this point all the performance like there's not there's not a miss there's no misses yet i don't think you get a miss until really <clears throat> intolerable cruelty maybe which isn't even really their movie in 2003 right. so that's where you start to kind of it starts to get a little off track for the coen brothers but we'll, we'll talk about that later uh i you know there's a lot of themes about with circles and time and it starts right from the beginning with <clears throat> with time, you know, with seeing the gears and the clocks and, and everything and, and how that factors in later on where time literally stops. And, you know, from the, the circles with all the clocks and watches that are constantly, you know, you're constantly seeing to the ring of the hula hoop and later on the Frisbee that, you know, the hula hoop being the, the centerpiece of, of the movie really, or part of it. Uh, so there's just a lot of, visual references thematically as well yeah i mean in the you know the time piece that warring hudson like or warring hudsucker like winds up right before he jumps yeah <laughs> jumps out his window you know yeah I, what a great I, great scene with you know with yeah. great actors too the i do have a question though with warring where he's in that boardroom and then he sort of has a realization and like to me like seeing it for the first time that read to me like that's when he chose to end his life and maybe it doesn't matter because but the blue letter sort of negates the idea of that like, that's his realization that he would have realized it before but does it matter like you know I, or or am i interpreting like his like when he stares out the window and he just changes am i misinterpreting that no i i think i think that's that's sort of a question that that because it does read like that's where he, you know, sitting in that chair is when he makes that decision. Yeah. But maybe, you know, who knows? Uh, I, I never really read too much into that, but yeah, it is. That, that is a bit of a question that if he would, you know, with the blue letter factored in, he would have been committed to this decision already. So, yeah, but I guess it's not really the point. Right. So mm -hmm. it's, I, I, you know, like, oh, you don't have to like, what's the continuity of things? Like, who cares? Like, that's not yeah. the point. And like, and that's what, you know, it, it just elevates the art of it all. Not the, you know, uh, not like, oh, the continuity is a little off. Who cares? Like, <laughs> the blue letter is a tool. The, the blue letter is 
something that that is this like weird MacGuffin. No, it's not really a MacGuffin, right? But it's this thing like it would have changed the story had it been revealed at a different time. But mm-hmm. right, but it doesn't even come back up until the very end. You know, like it yeah. it drives it drives the opening and the introduction of of uh, Norville to to Sydney, right? Right. Yeah. And then it dis like then it's not then uh, does well, it even come back up? It, it uh, well it it comes back up at the end, but it, it's well, interesting right. that that you whether you know you're I think they tried to make you forget about it. That was part of what they were doing is like just forget right. about the blue letter because you're distracted with the whole rest of the story that's happening. I watched this uh, with with my sons and uh, one of my kids was like. He didn't even deliver the blue letter. He was like locked into the blue <laughs> Very letter. Very frustrating. Yeah. 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 Like, so he's like, what happened to the blue letter? And then of course, you know, it pays off at the end. But <laughs> um, but I think that was that was very slyly done that we're just gonna just forget about this because all these other things are happening now. Right. Right. And like with and with the theme of time and all that, it's just like even in if if anything like this were to happen, it this supposedly takes place over 30 days, but Somehow he become he becomes the president, has some time. They're already then the public is already turning against him. Then he comes up with a great idea, and then that thing takes time to not work. And then it's a fad. And now he's huge. Then what? And then, or, you know, all that stuff. And it's like you, that that compression of it all. You know, it's not it's not realistic. And, and again, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like this idea that think all this would take place over thirty days. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a hyper reality yeah and that's that's the point and like and showing like the extremities of like corporations and big business of of the of the time and how things go and it's just it, everything's like an exaggeration or hyper hyper realistic version of of what you would picture it like you know yeah Where, how, how could all of that yeah. happen within a 30-day span it wouldn't well, everything's like a caricature, right? Like the the characters are caricatures. The yeah. uh, the the experiences throughout the movie are kind mm-hmm. of overblown caricature caricatures of those experiences. Like it's all just like mm-hmm. dialed up. I you know one character that I love very very subtle character is uh, Sidney Musburger's Taylor. Ah, uh, what the heck, Mister Musburger is such a nice man. I'm going to give him a double stitch anyway. <laughs> uh, that's some strong stitch, you bet. Mm. So mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. Musburger goes out the window I'll and give you Norval's the <laughs> yeah, holding on to him and he remembers having told his tailor to only do the single stitch on his pants, but then like another flashback to the tailor on his own saying, oh, he's such a nice man. I'll give him the double stitch anyway, which is what saves his life. <laughs> Right, it's such a great like sidetrack moment for mm-hmm. a really like almost a tertiary character that doesn't really play in beyond that is uh, is pretty hilarious. But that goes to back to the Coen Brothers casting that we were starting to talk about. Amazing actors, top to bottom. Uh, let's mm-hmm. obviously start with with our lead for the film, Tim Robbins. I developed it myself. Yes, sir. This is my ticket upstairs. You know, for kids. Where is Tim Robbins in 1994? Now, remember, this is coming out be- right before Shawshank. Right. So Shawshank, I think, is the movie that really launches Robbins, you know, up to that A level. 
that w- we did talk about Tim Robbins a bit in our uh, our episode on Bob Roberts, which you can hear in the archives at www.reconcinemation.com. And but, but like coming into this, he's doing Jacob's Ladder and The Player and Bob Roberts, none of which were big major. I don't maybe Jacob's Ladder was a hit. I can't remember, but it was popular. I mean, it, but because I think it was, you know, I mean, it was a really uh, psychological yeah. thriller. I, I still think haven't seen surprised it. Surprised people. I it's was intense, so man. Scared to. It's intense. I don't yeah. actually think it's very good, but it's fucking intense, man. It's not a movie you hear people talk about anymore. So that you know, no, I, but I, it was then. Like oh, it sure. was like like yeah. every like I feel like that was like summer. Everybody was talking about it. Was like Jacob's Ladder and the Serpent and the Rainbow were the yeah. two movies that I was like, nope, not going to watch these. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like totally. I ended up finally seeing Jacob's Ladder, and I was like, mm, what? Like, <laughs> but things have changed evolved yeah. so much since yeah. then so uh but shortcuts also had just come out yep. uh prior to this which i, I think jennifer jason one. lee was also in shortcuts wasn't she i feel like everybody was in shortcuts. yeah yeah so um yep. but uh, that one again like that that one had credibility right because if, if i'm remembering correctly that's altman yep that's robert altman so you know like he's you know like he's a very credible filmmaker at the time and and so like certainly uh you know he uh uh tim robbins was working with talented people mm-hmm. and his you know i i i would say that his big breakout was shawshank but like he's on a trajectory sure. doing good movies with talented people yeah like, i mean bull durham from, before that from early on yeah exactly yeah. i mean bull durham was a hugely successful movie Top now granted gun. he was he was like third billing in Bull Durham, but, yeah, but you know, but an I mean, important character though. I mean, very important. Yeah. yeah. Top gun um, could not have been made without Tim Robbins. We all know yes. this Merlin Merlin was the, the real lead of the movie. Yep. <laughs> the un, the unspoken uh, hero, the yeah. unsung hero. Um, uh, but yeah, working with like great directors and I think really just kind of sitting under the learning tree. And then yeah. Bob Roberts is sort of his chance since he wrote and directed it. That's really his movie. It's it's him starting to get involved in a, a a deeper level, which he would the rest of his career, really. So that sort of, I think, pointed him in the direction of this movie of continuing to work with great actors and great directors. Yeah. And I mean, I know I said Shawshank was his breakout, but there's also nothing to lose, which was 97. <laughs> Hell yes. Don't Maybe forget nothing to lose. <laughs> don't, don't you dare forget it. Um, but his, his character, his take on, on Norval Barnes is, it's really, I think, right where it should be. I mean, he's he's silly and sort of zany and over the top, but so, you know, but also he can turn and just be so dramatic and heartfelt in, in, in like the next beat. So... Well, He's a great actor to play that merger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anything, the the roles that he's most known for up to this point is kind of this naive, uh, you know, green kind of kind of character. And I mean, he nails it every time. Kind of this wide-eyed, uh, deer in headlights kind of kind of character that he plays, and he does it here as well. Although we know you know, he's much smarter than, than he's really kind of uh, letting on or that we, yeah, you know, we he's, learned. 
he's an idea man and he's forward thinking. Uh, just it's not coming across that way, really, because I mean, no one's a giving circle him a circle on a sheet of paper, but it's for the kids, guys. <laughs> right. It's for the kids. Um, and he's sort of the everyman, and that's that's another theme, an ongoing theme of the Coen brothers, is sort of an, an everyman who becomes a hero in, in, in their own sort of twisted way. It's like you had one really in blood simple. You've got one in raising Arizona with Nicholas cage. Uh, you've got, I don't know. in Miller's crossing, if there's really maybe Gabriel Byrne, but no, not, no. not quite. Uh, and then you've got it here. So, and, and then, you know, you could say the dude is sort of a, sort of that character in Lebowski and yeah. Clooney and O Brother and and so on and so forth, but um, not necessarily in every one of their films. But it is a theme they they go back to quite often. Yeah, is it William H Macy in Fargo? Who's it in Fargo? <laughs> kind, uh, I think maybe you think it is for a while, and yeah, you know, definitely not a hero. <laughs> nope. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee uh, is making a triumphant return to reconsinimation after we last uh, discussed her on our look back at Fast Times at Ridgemont High, mm-hmm. which you can find in the archives at reconsinimation.com. She is, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if she was, I guess she was a, a pretty strong leading lady at this point. I mean, she had, she had been around for a while. She had, uh, she had been in, rush in single white female she was also in shortcuts so uh, you know i think she had put her time in and and was at that was ready to be a leading role and she's fits in perfectly for that fast talking you know reporter hard edge kind of type I, I think she's great here this might be my favorite role that she's done i tell you the guys are phony Phony, huh? As a $3 bill. Says who? Says me, Amy Archer. Why is he an idea man? Because Hudsucker says he is. What are his ideas? Why won't they let anyone interview him? Yeah, she nails it. You know, and I think part of it is like, you know, her look. She's got she's got kind of that like kind of sleepy-eyed Audrey Hepburn, you mm-hmm. know, kind of kind of or Catherine Hepburn Catherine kind of Hepburn. approach. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh so it's like I she she nails this. She's great. She comes in, man. I saw an interview that Bruce Campbell was uh, giving to um, I just think some people like at a book signing, and uh, they were asking him like who his favorite person uh, to work with was, and and he hands down said it was Jennifer Jason Lee because wow uh, because of her scenes here in Hudsucker, like they have very few scenes, but she has so much dialogue because she's saying things so fast and she would come in to the, to the scenes and just had everything memorized. Like she would just like blast it out and she killed it like every take. And, you know, like he was like, it was amazing, you know, because she just is so on point throughout this entire movie for this role. And, uh, you know, I think, I think she really kills it. And I don't know if she was nominated for an award here or not, but I feel like uh, that was a missed opportunity if she wasn't. Cause she, oh, absolutely. She's yeah. really great. Yeah. They they've had some really strong women in their in their films. Obviously sure. Francis McDormand is the number one, but the queen. And yeah. she's kind of the every man of that movie, actually, when you think about it. So yeah, I guess she's the every, yeah, right. She's she, the every she, man. Yep. The every, every yeah. person, the every absolutely. person. Yeah. For Fargo. You mean? Yeah. 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 
going back to my question. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It, it sort of dawned Absolutely. on me. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not Macy. It's her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Macy's kind of like the villain of the movie. Uh, one oh, of is. many villains. So. The tragic villain of all the, uh, that is always in Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking William H. Macy from Mystery Men, not really from Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Vanilla Sky. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, Winona Ryder and uh, Bridget Fonda also auditioned uh, for this. Magnolia, Magnolia. I'm sorry, William Magnolia. H. Not yeah. in Vanilla Sky. He was in Magnolia. Sorry. Yeah, you're forgiven, David. <laughs> to me, those that's okay. the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> really? They but both... I haven't seen either of them in 20 years. <laughs> they both have Tom Cruise. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Tom Cruise, uh, that is who Joel Silver put up for the Norval Barnes role. Can you yeah. imagine this movie? I would but, love to see the alternate universe version of this. I just, I, I don't like, he could never play silly. Like it would be a totally different take on the character and it would make it a much serious, much more serious movie. I think I young Tom Cruise could do it. I yeah. don't know, man. I just can't think of anybody that's, uh, I, I feel like this is, this is a movie that's like close to perfectly cast. Yeah. yeah. Like from oh, top yeah. to bottom. It's great. I wouldn't replace anybody, but I'm curious what those would be like. We talked about the Newman Cruz connection quite a bit on the color of money, but here I don't think it would have fit. Yeah, probably. So imagine if this movie had had Tom Cruise and Winona Ryder as your leads instead, that is a very, very different movie. It'd be interesting because it's like Tom Cruise at the time, right? Like, so, so this is after far and away. Yeah. After the firm. All right, yeah. I mean, I think he could do it. But like when you get to when you get to War of the Worlds and he's been in stuff and like he plays a deadbeat dad who's like sucks. I'm like, I don't buy this. I don't buy this for a second. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't like, know. But is Tom Cruise too big a name for this role? Like, yeah, I like... I, at that time probably. And is he yeah. able yeah, to play like yeah. whimsical, naive? No, I don't. I just nope. don't know. No, and I, I think, don't think so. I mean, I like the pairing of Cruz and Newman back together again, but I don't think it's the right kind of. I think you're um, right. I, the He's right play. Well, big. okay. Let me let me back that up. You know, in in the color of money, can he play naive? Yes, and he does it very well. That's also yeah, but 19... it's a cocky. There's a but, cockiness. It's correct, not... but it's also 1986. Now this is 1994. He's just mm-hmm. done the firm and and uh, a few good men. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which it. is like. You know, he's going toe to toe with Jack Nicholson. It's it's I, I couldn't buy him going backwards like that. Yeah, he's having yeah. verbal fisticuffs with Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman. You know, he couldn't be manipulated by and by Paul Newman. He'd, yeah. he'd be, you know, it, it, you wouldn't buy it. I think yeah. Or I mean, yeah. he would do a serviceable job. But I think that you're right. I think it's the what we've seen and what we have. Tim Robbins is is perfect casting. Um. Uh, back to Jennifer Jason Lee, though, she had auditioned for the Coen brothers for Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink and hadn't landed the role in either of those movies. But she was definitely she stayed on their radar. They knew that she was somebody they did want to work with and just kind of needed to find that right part for her. And I'm glad I think we're all glad that it, it came along and she fit in so well with that. You know, you definitely that Catherine Hepburn inspired uh, character. I love that. I love that stuff. I love that. I love the, I love the lilt of the voices, the accents, the speed. Oh yeah. I mean, everything is spot on. Yeah. Just, and it's not just her. I mean, it's just like, it's throughout the whole movie, but like, I mean, her part's fantastic. 
but, but those scenes in the in at the newspaper offices when she you know just bouncing off John Mahoney and, and Bruce Campbell. Oh like, man, so good. Yeah, the scenes with her and Bruce Campbell are great. Yeah, yeah and there's only like what, three of them. Yeah, they're not very many. Yeah, yeah, but they're all yeah. gold. I got a story for you. It's about a limp-wristed editor or whatever the hell. Like you know. <laughs> It's just so fun. Yeah, they're so funny together. They're so great. Back in college, when I went through my Bruce Campbell phase, this was definitely one like, oh, well, we, we got to watch Hudsucker. I mean, it's a it's a huge role for him. <laughs> he's, he's in like 10 minutes. <laughs> but he was part of that Sam Raimi, yeah. you know, group yeah. that he was he was part of the gang. So, you know, he shows up in pretty much every Sam Raimi movie somewhere. Still Some, today. Still today. Yeah. As does uh, Raimi's old uh, car that uh, yeah. we'll talk about that when we get to Evil Dead. <laughs> um, let's uh, but let's go back to our our uh, fearless leader here, Paul Newman. Wearing Hudsucker's abstract art on Madison Avenue. What we need now is a new president who will inspire panic in the stockholder. A puppet. A proxy. A pawn. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Some jerk we can really push around where is mr newman in 1994 we, we last left him in 1986 and you know winning best actor for the color of money maybe slash sort of a lifetime achievement award there but well deserved and you know right after that he kind of pumps the brakes on the career you know not yeah. totally but really slows it down gets a little bit choosier about which projects he does. And honestly, you know, he doesn't, I, I watched all of his films when he passed from start to finish everything that was available. I saw a lot of these things that were on my list forever that, that I hadn't seen. And I don't think a lot of the movies he did choose after color of money were the greatest films. They're really not. His performances are fine. You know, I'm not sure of all of his reasoning on picking some of those films, <clears throat> but they all kind of are doing something different. And it seems like he he's trying to, I don't know, just trying to like do something he hasn't done before. So right. we yeah. get Fat Man and Little Boy, which is about the the nuclear testing of you know the development of nuclear arms and John Cusack's in the film. It's it's kind of a dark depressing movie and he's sort of the general in command of the operation uh the manhattan project and um it's an oak as a film it's okay of course he's good in it but you know not not one i would really watch again Mm -hmm. blaze is you know where he's really starting to accept his age and that he's you know now an older guy and and the kind of roles he should be playing he's like a sort of wild old you know older senator who's just sort of like a little bit of a wild child and still kind of a party guy <laughs> so but it, that's part of the story is like you know he's you know whatever age he's at and still behaving like that and that's part of the character so right. um a good performance there and then uh what was the other film he does uh mr, mr. and mrs. And mrs bridge yeah which is Almost, I, I can't remember if it is or is very similar to a Merchant Ivory film. And it's with Joanne Woodward where they're, you know, one of the, I think, five or six films that they did together, his his wife in, in real life. 
And uh, it's a very slow, just character picture about, you know, this Southern family on their homestead and their lives together and with their, their children. And it's just that it's sort of a character drama and definitely one you have to be in the mood to watch. It's not like I'm going to throw Mr. And Mrs. Bridge in there. It's not a go-to, not a go-to, but, uh, but then that leads to sort of a return to the bigger studio movie with the Hudsucker proxy. And this is the, I think the first time since probably the 1950s or maybe HUD that Newman is the bad guy, the villain. Yeah. <laughs> like out and out villain. There's yeah, not really it's, a sh- shred of decency there. It's kind of his, it's, it's his Henry Fonda role to uh, once upon a time in the West, you know, yeah, like absolutely doesn't, doesn't do it very often, but he's in the twilight of his career and wants to kind of, you know, diversify a little bit here and yeah. have some fun doing something that he doesn't get to do. It's great too. I mean, he's really, he, he's super entertaining and hilarious in this really. Like, I mean, he, he plays a good villain for, for this, for this, uh, this picture. Yeah. The, and I, I love the first shot where we see him too. So after wearing Hudsucker has, jumped out the window and committed suicide and gone splat on the sidewalk. We just do this kind of like push up the building back to the window where he jumped out and we see Sidney Musburger, you know, smoking a cigar, very does not seem to care about what just happened. And now he's sort of in control of the company. And before we hadn't seen him at all. He's not seated at that board at that table with the whatever board of directors, uh, uh, or whatever that was, but yeah, he's not seen at all until that moment. So sort of hiding in the shadows. I, I like the way one of the characters in the movie puts it when Warring Hudsucker jumps out the window. Uh, they say that he jellied the sidewalk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's graphic. <laughs> <laughs> that, that says it. <laughs> but yeah, Newman is so good at, at this villain. I mean, he can play those notes really well just manipulate it you know they need to find a a proxy or a patsy that they can manipulate into dumbing down the stocks you know like turning the company from a massive winner to a big time loser so that the board can buy up all the uh, wearing hudsucker shares and take ownership of the company instead of it going public so you know he's got to do this quickly and that's where he meets uh, Norval Barnes, who's sent up to his office with a blue letter, which gets forgotten in all the hubbub of what happens next. And, you know, Musburger sort of realizing that Barnes is the the person he's been looking for. The Patsy. The Patsy. Yep. That. Uh, and then just his complete manipulation of of Barnes and and propping him up and we get that great montage of Tim Robbins laughing like that like it's yeah. like a five minute sequence of just of of telling what's happened and as as he's taken his seat as president of the company and just laughing cut to laughing cut to laughing it's one of those Coen Brothers moments it's so good it's kind of an interesting twist on a montage right because it's not just over music like it's right. got you know like it's cut from scene to scene to scene it's not the dissolves. It's the cut from scene to scene to scene. And there is dialogue and laughing, but it is a number of scenes all strung together quickly. 
you know, in montage style. So it's just a little bit of a different twist, but that's what they're good for. You know, like they, they like to put their own spin on things. Yeah. Yeah, they certainly do. Um, and it's, I, I love the, uh, I love that moment where, or the, when, when we sort of start to circle back towards the end of the movie, when Barnes, uh, you know, does is falling off the side of the building and he's, you know, doing that plummeting down, which I love how, how tall exaggerated, you know, exaggeratedly tall these buildings are that they're just falling forever. It seems. Yeah. And time is frozen. And we see Musburger just like Newman, just frozen in that chair with that, that grin on his face. That that's just that, that shot and that expression just summarized the character to me. Just the teeth, man. He's all teeth. Yeah. Yeah. He's all teeth in that shot. Um, and, and it's uh, funny, the, uh, they offered, they tried to get Clint Eastwood as this, as the Musburger role. And apparently an offer was made, but it was, you know, at that time he was directing all his films, so he wasn't really available. But I, I mean, I could kind of see it, but I think I just like Newman more that I can get into the character more with him rather than Eastwood. Yeah, I don't know if I'd, I'd be interested to see Eastwood in that. There's something about something about Musburger that there's a, you know, it's that that Paul Wim, Paul Newman kind of whimsy that comes through. That's very subtle and all of that. Uh, yeah, I, but it'd, again, be interesting. What if, yeah, what if Tom Cruise and Clint Eastwood made this movie together? Tom Cruise, Clint Eastwood, and Winona Ryder. <laughs> yeah, in wow. the Hudsucker Proxy. That, that <laughs> totally different movie. Yeah, it might have done better at the box office, but we'll it get probably would have done. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's. I mean, look. Clint Eastwood looks great with a cigar, smoking a cigar and having a yeah. cigar and is burning in his hand. But yeah. I think the part of the Paul Newman allure here is that it's unexpected, you know? Mm. So, yeah, yeah. I got yeah, not- I got a perfect casting. Yeah. Not a character, you know, he's really played before, you know, even his other villain roles. I mean, I don't know if HUD is sort of a villain, but he's certainly not a nice guy uh, in, in that film. This is such an exaggerated, like all the other characters, it's really an exaggerated version of what this, you know, what this character is. And and he's really, you know, his end game is that he's going to be the one being the president and owner of the company. But it's a long, a long sort of road getting there. And the way he plays it is, is just, is really, you know, a pretty amazing. And I think one of the better, maybe even, we talked about Nobody's Fool last year, about this time last year, actually, uh, which you can hear in our archives at reconcinimation.com, which was also a 1994 Paul Newman movie. So now we can say we've covered every single one of the 1994 Paul Newmans. We got them all. We got them all. That? <laughs> Clean sweep. Um, so check that box, David. Done. The... You know, there's not a lot of great, great roles in the remaining part of his career, but I would say this, Nobody's Fool and Road to Perdition were were sort of the three. So, um, but th- this is like the most fun out of them all. So it, it's yeah. just good to see kind of, I can see it being a hard character to play, but it just comes across in such a fun and whimsical way. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the rest of the cast, you know, we talked about a lot of them already, but just some other people. Uh, we do see Steve Bu- Buscemi uh, very quickly as a bartender. 
you know, I was talking earlier about the Coen brothers ensemble. So at this point, we're starting to see Buscemi show up a lot. We're seeing John Turturro a lot, John Goodman, uh, Francis McDormand, um, you know, all of them kind of come in and out. They're not in every single film, but uh, Buscemi at this point had done uh, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, and now Hudsucker. So this is his third. Was he not? He wasn't in Raising Arizona, right? No, he, he's not in okay. Raising. Uh, but you get Goodman, who does only the uh, newspaper narration or radio narration in this film. Yeah. So he technically is in it, but you had him in in Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing and now right. Hudsucker. And yeah. then we wouldn't see him again till Lebowski, but then we also have Oh Brother and yeah. and uh, one of the I forget I'm forgetting which one, but one of the more recent ones as well. Um, Bill Cobb as the as as Moses the uh, the the timekeeper would you call him? So the clock yeah worker? I think the clock <laughs> the the yeah the timekeeper works yeah. So that's a that's a color of money reunion right there. Even though they don't have any screen time together, but yeah. you got Bill Cobb back, uh, another great actor who's in a, a zillion movies and good in every one of them. Well, does he do some of the narration as well? Yes, yeah, I, I think he he's the one telling the story, right? Right, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. So he opens and closes the movie. I don't think he's got much in the middle, but he starts and finishes it. Yeah, he just bookends. Um, Charles Durning who we see in only two scenes as wearing Hudsucker. Great actor, another person who will show up in, in more Coen Brothers films uh, coming up. Uh, uh, John Mahoney, we talked about, another great actor, mostly known for being on Frasier, but was has other... Uh, he was also in... Was he in Barton Fink? I want, I want, yeah, he was in Barton Fink as well. I think that's right. And uh, Jim Frost, who plays the the elevator. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, the elevator the guy. Buzz. Buzz. Yes. Hey, buddy. Yeah, great role here. Uh, you know, I I sort of lost track of him though after this until I watched The Wire, where he's one of the regulars and great performance there. So highly underrated actor. Hmm. Um, and of course Bruce Campbell, who we already talked about. So yeah. Yeah, a great, great supporting cast here. All of them fit in really, really nicely in that fast talking, you know, uh, kind of energy, high energy, you know, old school 1950s actor kind of kind of style. Um, really, really well done. But uh, OK, so should we uh, what else do we want to cover? Should we should we move on to the box office and see how how the movie uh, released? Well, I was just curious, like to me with the New York, like I saw in the, in the credits of that, the North, North Carolina casting. So I was like, cause to me, I'm like, they shot this. They must've shot this on the, like, cause nope. there's like backlot shots. Yeah. And stuff. It's nope. crazy. Right. But I'm like, it. that's what, like yeah. I, my question was like, which backlot is that? But I don't think it was None. anywhere in LA. Right. Like, no, they, they shot it in Wilmington, North Carolina with like, some, what? some exteriors in Chicago. Hmm. And that was it. Everything was built on on some kind of stage there, you know, warehouse or something. But I don't know. I, I know Screen Gems has studios there. I don't know if they were there yeah. in 1993, though. So do you think um, that why Wilmington? Do you think that Wilmington had an abundance like of, must have of 
1930s <laughs> style like uh art deco buildings somewhere like a like a cache of them and one of their one of their on off one of their main streets like i just don't know it's such a random place for them to it's a good question i you know this is before the time of the tax incentive so Mm -hmm. maybe there was some kind of tax incentive type thing at the time that that brought film there but that really didn't come into play till later so i don't know if you know I, i know newman was really based out of new york maybe at the time uh you know all of these actors were in new york and closer they wanted yeah. to keep something on the east coast but maybe maybe nothing was really available in new new york city proper i don't know yeah there must have just been some north carolina development because there's there's i mean i know every state technically has a film office but right. uh you know i think there's always been a work in north carolina for a lot of reasons so i i don't know that must be it just Less seems like such a random place to to film, considering this is supposed to be. And now I've never been to Wilmington. Maybe it looks like a bustling metropolis. I couldn't tell you, but, <laughs> but everything is certainly on a stage and in a, or a back way. lot. Like yeah. there's not. They didn't it's do all anything built, practical. Really, yeah. yeah. I, I don't see huh. anything that's like a real street, other than I think there was like one or two shots, and I'm like, hey, you can kind of. Well, and and speaking to that, you know, Dennis Gassner discussed that they used at least five stages. So it could have been finding a place that had the quantity of stages at the time they wanted to shoot this. They they shot it November 92 through March of 93. So, you know, over. Yeah. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Working hard. Um, so that could have been it that, you know, they need to find a place that had that much space yeah, for that. That makes sense. Yeah. Because all of those, you know, the boardroom had to be well, built. It's probably in. just less expensive. And that on top of it, the boardroom stretched across like multiple stages and, and they had to like put the thing together in pieces. So, the so it's, awesome. I mean, the yeah. mail room was gigantic. Yeah. And that was that you could definitely the boardroom see. Is, isn't that big technically like, compared yeah. to like, uh, Musburger's office. I think. That's true. That, yeah, that could be. Well, that could also be the way it was shot. But it yeah. just felt like it wasn't as large. Just think about the size of that table, though. Yeah, like how <laughs> you know. Yeah, how that's a big ass table. And yeah, the funny I mean, thing when is, he's running, when he's running to jump out. The, I mean, the kind of the. It seems like he's coming from a football field away. You know, right. like yeah, yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is that here at Recon Cinema Studios, our boardroom table is. Twice double that size oh yeah. easily yeah I so mean. and we only have six board members so we usually have to send some kind of telegraph one mm-hmm. to another to uh I, get all I, of our points across. i think i you know i i don't know why you guys rejected my little like continuous train system where there's just a train that goes all the way around because you refuse to put sushi on the train and well, i want sushi train the boardroom is not lot. where we eat <laughs> we we eat in the cafeteria <sighs> So, but if I have to pass you a note, I'm putting it in the, the little passenger car <laughs> and you will wait the three minutes it takes to get over to you. <laughs> um, what'd you guys think of the, the VFX, the visual effects Pretty in good. this film? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, thought for 94. Yeah. 94, not a like big budget sci-fi movie of some sort. Like it was all well done. You yeah. know, I mean, a lot of the force perspective and the miniature stuff, like we talked about earlier, like it all plays really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a real good blend of of the sort of visual trickery mixed with some, you know, some sort of visual effects element, and uh, I, I think it 
flows together nicely. And, and it even sort of, you know, it, it's really emphasized with the falling out of the building, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, those shots in particular. But I think that sort of falls in line with the stylized rest of the film. So it, mm-hmm. that never bothered me at all. I thought it was fine. Yeah, it was yeah. nice. I mean, you know, there's just there's not enough practical effects these days. Yeah. Yep. You know, and it's this- it's like when you see it, like in things like, I mean, Interstellar, for instance, you know, like is the last movie that I can recall that was like heavily done with practical effects versus I'm sure there's others, but it's just the first one that pops in my head. But like, I don't know, the movie's kind of boring and not very great, but the practical <laughs> effects are awesome, oh, right? Like, oh, false. <laughs> sorry, I'm not a fan of Interstellar. I, f- I find that movie torture. Have you seen it more than once? I've seen it more than once. Okay. And I if, am... if after the second time you can't do it, I get, I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love the subject matter. And th- this is yeah. obviously like I, I find it completely fascinating. But for Christopher Nolan film, like I just this is it's not one of but like I, I struggle with it pretty, pretty mightily. To- totally get it. Totally get it. I enjoy it. I don't love it like as much as a lot of his other films, but I revisiting it again a couple of years ago i was just like oh wow i was like i'm still sort of sleeping on this like i like it but again uh, i think the practical effects are awesome and the, yeah, looks se- the sound design is awesome yeah and i love the subject matter that the movie is based on but for whatever reason like just it's so slow and drawn out for me like it it just is it like it's a little numbing at a certain point and i'm just like it's unfortunate I've, yeah you could tighten that uh, up. you feel like you could tighten that up with a, a different edit <laughs> yeah anyway, anyway. sorry <laughs> practical effects though i miss them interstellar's yeah. practical effects were great hudsucker proxy's practical effects were great let's get more of those going if i and ever it, direct a movie i'm doing miniatures for every exterior yeah. they're so awesome I well you were well, talking about them earlier i just kept thinking about the I keep jumping to other movies, but like the Beetlejuice miniatures. Yep. Like, yeah. Yep. I love Similar. that. Yep. I love it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, if you get a cinematographer and a production designer and a director who really know how to work with those, it's going to work just fine. It's going to work great. So, you know, I, I think now we have with younger directors coming up and not being experienced with, with those kind of uh, tools that they're, you know, uh, today's directors are not going to know how to work with miniatures or matte paintings. And, and they're just not going to be able to shoot those because they don't know how to do it. So that's all on Roger Deakins. Yeah. So Deakins <laughs> should basically, awesome. he should shoot everything. But I feel like it's, it's sort of like, well, why build like this when we can build a, a giant world 10 times as big? Sure. Of course can you can show it. And like, then you so get you, Phantom Menace. Well, no, I understand, but that's a cartoon. Like, but I think, I think, I, I get the idea of like, well, those things present limitations. Where basically now everything is written without limitations, everything is shot without limitations. Oh yeah, we can just create whatever. And yeah, like we're lo- but we're losing a sense of character of mm-hmm. of, of these practical things. So yeah, there's a charm that's just sort of like, them. yeah. yeah. There's I like mean, and li- there are time where these like big budget, like visual effects movies, like, I mean, sometimes they work, but I think a lot of times, you know, like people, the cre- sometimes creativity gets missed, you know, because you just like, you miss opportunities for creativity because you can, like you said, David, just kind of do whatever. 
Like there's, yeah. it's limitless. Yeah, you know? like the, the the limitations of of what you can do in, invoke creativity, or you know, like okay, well, how can we do this in an interesting way? I mean, we've seen it countless times in in, in movies where we're like, we just don't have the budget to do that, so we're gonna do this, and it turns out to be like great. Like you, you yeah. know, you use you use what you have. Hello, mm-hmm. Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. And like, so you know, so yeah, this is like. This, this was a this was fun to 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 be sort of on that cusp because yeah like even when they did like the um uh, what do you call it the uh the pipes the uh the tube system oh yeah in the building and oh, all yeah. that and then like they're and it's the camera's just zooming and following around pipes but then like you can tell like they've they put a a, a, a layer over it that's sort of cgi-ish sort of but like you know like you notice that but it doesn't really matter because you, all of the other stuff you see in the movie you know looks really good like it, it's part of the style like it's not just like oh we'll put something that's so crazy and something that you wouldn't be able to practically film on top of everything it's like the style of the film is all these practical effects the miniatures all that stuff and the and the production design so it's just you know you, you can forgive the things that stand out a little bit because it's not exactly betraying, you know, the visual style of the movie. Um, I, I do want to throw out a uh, shout out to Carter Burwell for the score as well. Mm. Great, great score. And I think he'd done a number of projects. I can't remember off the top of my head, which Coen brothers movies he's done, but I think he's done a bunch of them. So mm-hmm. um, great score by him. There was and- one one moment in the movie i can't remember the scene now but i was like is that like a danny elfman ish kind of thing yeah it feels like danny elfman doesn't it yeah yeah and like the movie sort of the production design of that sort of leans that way <laughs> it's like burton-esque in a, in a, in a certain sense or like something that danny elfman could easily be uh scoring but um but yeah no no, no the movie sounds great yeah but, and and he had done he had done miller's crossing he'd done barton fink he'd done raising arizona and uh i don't think he did oh and he did blood simple so he's he's scored every coen brothers movie to this point he has a music by uh credit for fargo i mean he's done a bunch yeah i definitely did fargo i i don't i think he stopped somewhere somewhere after that but i I could be wrong reading no country he's he just does so much serious man I mean, True Grit. Yeah, dude, this guy's done. Yeah, tons. Carter Burwell's fantastic. Hail yeah. Caesar. I'm looking for the one where he stopped. It might be Hail Caesar. It didn't look like he did Lewin Davis inside Lewin Davis, but that's a that's, a, and that's an interesting one though, right? Because that yeah, that's that's where like you see John song. Goodman pop up. Yeah, it's like a singer songwriter type. Because yeah, yeah, he's even back for Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy of Macbeth, which is their like latest one. Yeah, which is the latest Coen Brothers film that uh, I have not had a chance to see yet. To but see it's on Apple TV, right? Uh, yeah. Sorry, it's on uh, some version of it's on a streaming service. Service <laughs> yeah. you can use. We're not. We're not sponsored by. Was that an Fruit. Apple exclusive? I uh, yeah, I, think I think it so. was. Yeah, they made it for Apple. Yeah, yeah. All these sellouts, all these directors, including Martin Scorsese. Well, it could be one that was shows. just purchased, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I know they true. shot it because that's at happened Brothers, a lot the but, last couple of years. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but as far as Hudsucker gr- goes, when it comes out, it 
unfortunately Smash does not it? do very well at oh, all. No. It struggles. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, you know, they had some I think that Warner Brothers was really worried that it was going to be a bomb when it came out. So they went back to the Coen Brothers to try to add new scenes in, try to do something to make it more engaging for a wider audience. Uh, they have them add the sort of the, the beginning and the end, especially that fight scene at the end that, um, or really just sort of the fight scene at the end, not the, not right. the whole beginning, but uh, you know, to just add a little more spice to it, but which you don't really see too many action scenes like that outside of raising Arizona, <laughs> you know, right, right. Uh, in Coen brothers films, they refused um, any other reshoot ideas beyond that. Um, part of their deal with Joel Silver was that they retained Final Cut, which was pretty amazing for such young filmmakers. Yeah, and even to this day, not a lot of people get the that uh, that worked into their deals. So you know, they released the film pretty much as they wanted it. Um, I don't feel like it was marketed totally you know how the movie actually is. I don't think it matched the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the problem. But um, mostly I think people at this time in 1994 were just not in rhythm with the Coen brothers and with their, that blend of weird comedy and drama kind of mixed together. I really don't think it's until Lebowski that people started to get it, that this is, don't take this all so seriously. Like this is not a straightforward, serious, you know, fifties period drama. Like it's a weird, quirky comedy, is what it is. Right. That has dramatic elements. I mean, but Raising Arizona was successful and that was similar. Sure. But then, but then that was like a flash in the pan. I mean, you're right. Like, I do think Hudsucker was absolutely like not marketed correctly. I mean, we both worked in a video store, like consuming movies as much as possible. This one sat on the shelves. I remember walking yeah. by it hundreds of times and not a single time was like interested enough to like pick it up and, and take a look at it. Yeah. Completely just like missed raising Arizona was constantly selling was just, that's a very popular movie and and it holds up to this day and, and all the other Coen brothers movies, if they were even in stock like this one, Hudsucker would have been in stock, but yeah, yeah, just sat there. So, um, but let's check out how it did officially at the box office with box office glory. All right. This movie had a $25 million budget. Holy That's shit. pretty big. And a lot of that is going to, you know, the stars to Newman and Robbins. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is uh salary related, but, also, you know, lots of stages. So uh, it's an expensive movie. It opens up March 11th, 1994, opening against other new releases, Guarding Tests, Lightning Jack, <laughs> and The Ref. Wow. What so, is Lightning Jack? Does that have isn't Paul, that Hogan, Paul in Hogan? I think it's Paul Hogan. Yeah. Hmm. But it's not Crocodile Dundee. It's, it's it was his, his other movie. It's his other movie that wasn't Crocodile Dundee. Where he plays Croc- Crocodile Dundee, but not Crocodile Dundee, right? Because right? well, Australian doing stuff. Yeah. Named Lightning Jack. <clears throat> He's an, uh, an Australian outlaw in the Wild West. Of course. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
But Hudsucker Proxy did not even make the top 10. Paul, Paul Hogan wrote Lightning Jack, by the way. Did he oh, direct well. it? He did not. <clears throat> Simon, I'm not Hitzer. dogging on Paul Hogan. I, I love me some Paul Hogan. Sure. And right? he, had a, he had a Cuba and a Beverly D'Angelo. So, well, listen, there we, I, yeah, we love Beverly. So, I love yeah. Bev. I like a Cuba. I, you know, I listen I, after this, I'm, I'm heading over. I'm going to, I'm going to watch some Lightning Jack. Sorry. Have you guys seen Guarding Tesla? We're just going to talk about these other movies real quick. Guarding <laughs> I, I saw Guarding Tesla, I think, a couple of years after it came That's out. That's Shirley MacLaine, right? Yeah, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I don't know okay. if it's still I don't know if it's still funny, but I remember seeing it. I've seen it once. I saw it yeah. in high school. I laughed a lot. It was Yeah. I enjoyed it. She's she's hilarious. Anyway, sorry. But looking back on promo you know the uh Hudsucker Proxy did not even make the top 10 at all or come even close to it. And looking back on it, absolutely Hudsucker is the movie I would rewatch and I have multiple times over any of the rest of these. So uh interesting but it's hard when you have like an artistic film that is studio backed that isn't marketed well like they're sometimes these things don't just just don't hit you know and yeah. especially when it comes out in march who's going yeah. to the movies in march now? right i mean it's right after the oscars so you're mm-hmm. sort of in a downswing of what kinds of movies are coming out and it is sort of March, April, sort of a, a dead zone until you get to your warming up for summer stuff. And then you see Tim Robbins with like wild hair and a, and a hula hoop in his hand. And it's like, what, what the hell is this? And yeah. it's also period. Like you can tell by his costume, it's period. So it's yeah. like, you know, just there's a lot of things that the mainstream audience may not, you know, find an appeal for. Well, well so. what did people want to see in, in 1994? They wanted The Lion King. They wanted Speed. They wanted True Lies. Yes. So, yeah. You know. Yes. When you're giving them, yeah, you know, movie, hey, they even wanted Wayne's World too. If this movie would have come out ten years earlier or ten years later, it probably would have done fine. But oh, the yeah. fact that it came out in mid '90s is just the wrong timing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It uh, it the domestic run was only 2.8 million worldwide. I've seen a couple of numbers. I've seen 11 million. I've seen 14 million. Either way. It's a pretty huge loss for the studio, and and I don't know, you know, it it's. Let, well, let's talk about like it's later the legs it found later on, uh, in just a second. But it did rank number ninety six of nineteen ninety four, hmm. smack dab in between the madness of King George and threesome. So hmm. threesome, yeah. Why do I feel like I want to say that's a Stephen that. Baldwin movie. That sounds like a Stephen Baldwin. Sounds, sounds like, like something, something he would do. Sounds yeah. <laughs> maybe Stephen Baldwin, Patsy Kensit, maybe. Maybe Lara Flynn Boyle. Is that? That sounds all right. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not looking at the right one though. Not Patsy Kensit, but I was right. Stephen Baldwin, Lara Flynn Boyle, Josh Charles. Josh oh. Charles. Oh. Yeah. I definitely have seen this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why but do you enjoy it as much as the Hudsucker Proxy? I don't know. <laughs> no, not at all. You're like, I could not. Never. Alexis Arquette. That's an interesting story. Yeah. But as far as Hudsucker huh. goes, I think, you know, as we and many people our age sort of really discovered them in the late 90s, specifically after Big Lebowski comes out. 
you know, when Lebowski is out and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, that period of time of the, the early 2000s, I think that's where people were really going back and watching the Coen Brothers library. They had gotten a lot more popular at that point. So, you know, starting with Fargo, I think between Fargo and Oh Brother is where they're really at their uh, they're really on the rise. So I think, you know, there probably was some financial gain here uh, through video sales at that point when we were, you know, when we were working in the video stores around Fargo time. No, there wasn't any movement for Hudsucker. But I think later on, it, it started to get some legs and more appreciation than it got uh, when it first came out. So where would we let's rank it in two two ways. Number one, let's rank it as a Coen Brothers film. Where would you where would you put this one? Top, top, is it a top five movie, top ten movie? Top top eight, maybe. Yeah. I can't I can't put it top five. That's not fair. No, it can't be top five, but it's top ten. Top 10, top 10. Yeah, definitely top 10. I think yeah. it's for me probably in the six or seven spot. Really? I, I love all of the original Coen Brothers films, like everything straight up until everything through Oh Brother. And then with The Man Who Wasn't There, I think they kind of get off track a little bit for a few movies, but then they come back around with No Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading, I really like, and, and uh, A Serious Man and uh, True Grit. In a lot of ways, which is their, you know, their biggest financial hit of of all is is true. Yeah, Grant. I had a tough time with Serious Man. To be honest with you, it's 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 not yeah. a movie that's for everybody. It, and it, yeah. I also saw that on a the the like the twenty four hour Oscar movie marathon at AMC. <laughs> yeah. That was oh. the first time I watched it. It was like yeah. the third movie. I'm like, oh no. Yeah, they, at that point in the like late two thousands, they were doing the movies that they wanted to do. Like, yeah, it yeah, it yeah. didn't. It was a good like, movie. Yeah, really hard, really, really hard. I didn't even know what I was getting into. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, don't that think anybody did. That one's that one's a bit of a grind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of True Grit either, to be quite honest. Like, I, oh, really? I mean, it's it's oh. entertaining. I enjoyed but, True Grit like really, yeah. really. I haven't, se- I've only seen it the one time actually. Yeah, but boy, I loved it. Like, I thought that was great. And now, you know, unfortunately, it seems like quietly the Coen brothers have split up and have gone their separate ways. I think they are not working together on projects right now. What I think about it's the tragedy just, of Macbeth? I think that is just Joel Cohen. Really? Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, they're making choices. Maybe they don't want to stay busy. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah, I. Uh, it's just interesting certainly, that certainly. that uh, I don't know what happened. I you know haven't really uh, heard like what you know something in particular had had happened or what. But uh, they they do seem to have. Oh, maybe Ethan ways. just wants to chill out. You know, maybe yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, he's they've been working a long time. Yeah. Um, and you know, then we didn't I, mention it. So oh, hail, hail Caesar. Sorry. I saw that on the list. I like that one a lot though. It's a lot of fun. So I, true grit, true grit. I'm not a huge fan of, cause I really? feel like it's super straight. Like it's, I think their most straightforward movie. Like it's just, that's true. It doesn't, it doesn't really feel, feel very like a Coen, Coen brothers. movie. No, it really doesn't. It just seems Whereas like, like a movie. hail Caesar. I don't think everybody, I don't think a lot of people like that one that much, but I, yeah. I found that one. Like I, I thought that one was great. There's, so, anyway. there's always like a level of surrealism to their movies, right? And yeah, True Grit sort of lacks mm-hmm. that entirely. Yeah, like there's and, like yeah. this weird askew kind of 
storytelling going on of some sort. And yeah, True Grit and just then, seems very straightforward. But Hail yeah. Caesar has it like in spades. Like it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, like yeah. yeah. So th- yeah, there's something there. <laughs> I have to confess, the Hail Caesar is the one Coen Brothers movie I have not seen yet. Oh, Get really? Yeah. C Tates. C yep. Tates kills it with the Clune. Yeah, oh, I think my you buddy, can find buddy it on C-T- a streaming service. <laughs> C Tates, right. George, uh... George Clune, the uh, the guy. Ooh, I'm not gonna get his name right. The guy who played Han Solo. Harrison Ford? No, the other guy. Uh, Harrison Ford? The guy who played Solo. (laughs) Solo and Solo. All right. Oh, he's really good in that, though. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Oh, man. You got to watch that. All right. I'll I'll watch it. I'll watch it. There's like like four amazing scenes in that movie. I really enjoy Um, the overall product. I don't know how you're going to feel, but there is some really good stuff in that one. Speaking of really good stuff, uh, Paul Newman. Where would you rank uh, the hot soccer proxy in your Newman meter? Top. I would probably put it top. He's got a lot. That's a lot in there. I would probably put it top 12. Ooh, yeah. I mean, look, he's great in everything he does, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah I'm with you. I would say top 12 of like a 15, 16, you know, solid. The, the top 16 is probably solid run mm. all great films uh, and performances but uh that's probably where i'll put it i have not seen every single paul newman movie the way Same. that you have so to put it in top 12 <laughs> it's probably right I, yeah i'd be scaling out of probably the number of paul newman movies i've seen but i think it's i think it's a fair spot because there's so many just mostly set in the 60s and early part of the 70s where you know it's just a a lot of great films a lot starting with h and this being this joins paul newman's h club which he always Mm. felt like h was a good luck uh letter for him with the hustler and hud and ombre cool hand luke and uh the hud sucker proxy and there may be one or two others in there but um yeah, and just hot bikini girl six that he was in. Yep, yep. We don't talk about that. <laughs> he one, did but... that in the late seventies. <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I think uh, the movie really stands up. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. If you're a Coen Brothers fan, it's definitely a must watch. If you're a Newman fan, it's a must must watch. And and we're we're both. So it was time to cover it. And you know when we're, we're talking about Paul Newman there's so much there's so many more movies that we can cover we can do Newman New Year in 2023 as well so uh maybe this is just going to be a thing we'll have to we'll have to wait and find out till next year thematic months the whole time yeah that's all we're going to do that's every how we're, month thematic just we're keep switching walking. our programming this is how it works from <laughs> this point forward uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, it's been a lot of fun going through some of Paul Newman's career with you. We looked at The Hustler. We looked at The Color of Money and now Hud- The Hudsucker Proxy. And uh, we'll have to see next year what we're thinking for, for Newman New Year 2023. But uh, we've got a fun lineup coming up next month in February. So stay tuned for that. And uh, I think that's about it. I'm going to just say a quick shout out and thank you so- to some of our friends. Uh, Jay Blake Fischera with Scored to Death. Check out his podcast and his book series. Uh, and a thank you to our good friend Curtis for the poster as usual. Uh, anything you guys want to say before we wrap it all up? 
Happy New Year. Happy Newman Year. <laughs> Newman Year. Newman Year. All yeah, right, no. guys. We'll, Congratulations, uh, everybody. Yeah. Congrats on it. making it to 2022. We, we made it. it. Uh, all right, you guys. We will see you on the next episode of Reconsinimation. Take care. You know, for kids. file a complaint with personnel. File a faulty complaint and they dock you.